Hello folks and welcome to another SACPA session. SACPA acknowledges that this event takes place on the lands of the Blackfoot people in the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3 and we pay respect to their past, present and future cultural heritage, beliefs and relationships to the land. SACPA is very thankful for the continuing support we receive from the Lethbridge Herald, the University of Lethbridge and Shaw Spotlight. Today we're very happy to have with us Ibrahim Toure. Ibrahim, and uh, let me just change the screen name. There we go. Ibrahim Toure is a full-time faculty in the School of Justice, School of Justice Studies at the Lethbridge College, and a PhD candidate in cultural, social, and political thought at the University of Lethbridge. He has a Master's of Arts in Criminal Justice from the University of Alberta with 11 years of experience working for Alberta Justice and Solicitor General, Correction Services Division as a corrections, correctional probational, or correctional probations and senior probation officer. Ibrahim specializes, speciality is in counter storytelling as a critical race theory methodology. His professional interests include black youth police interactions, racialization, racial profiling, marginalization, youth gangs, and corrections. Ibrahim, thanks so much for joining us today. And um, I'm certainly very much looking forward to your talk, and I'm sure everybody online is as well. Thank you very much, Annalise. Um, I do appreciate the opportunity for me to be here today. Um, so, you know, thanks for that uh, warm introduction, and uh, I, I look forward to the presentation myself. Um, if you can go to the next slide for me on the objectives, please. Yes. Okay. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for being here today. Um, so today I just wanted to kind of touch on three things. Um, but I wanted us to explore what, what does uh, race mean and why does uh, race matter at all if we're talking about uh, marginalization within our society. I wanted to also talk a little bit about what critical race theory is and the claims that critical race theories uh, are making as part of their research. Um, I am, I inspire myself as a critical race theorist in the making <laughs> to follow the full step of those that founded this um, uh, theoretical perspective in the 1980s from the United States. I wanted also to talk about um, how uh, the um, counter-storytelling challenges majoritarian uh, narratives within our own society. Uh, next, next slide, please. So what is race? We know that um, race is a central concept um, that is uh, play a part in the subordination of black people uh, in Canada and the United States, yet we don't always care about um, race, especially when we're doing research uh, in our societies. So what is race? For me, I think we know that race is not biological, uh, at least from uh, the work of Stuart Paul in um, Race, the Floating Signifier, where he discusses this uh, concept of race, where the attempt to, uh, to identify uh, differences from a scientific perspective has failed. And so for me, race, I see race as a social construct, just as uh, most of our, our critical race theories have seen it as a social construct, but it doesn't necessarily mean that race doesn't exist because we know 
um, race square parts that raise the skin color and other features that we are charged on um, to individuals within our society square parts on the experiences of those um, uh, people and so whether you identify as a, a black person a brown red or yellow um, race actually um, we know it does impact the type of experiences that uh, members of those communities the ones that we identify as black or brown or yellow do experience within society. For instance, suppose barbarism, criminality, poverty, among other attributes, are believed to be a natural tendency of blackness, being black. In that case, we can infer what a black person is going to do when we interact with a black person. So that's what I meant by saying, uh, although we can say race is a social construct, I want us to also know it is real in terms of its impact on those that we identify as black or yellow or brown. Next slide, please. So what is critical race theory? We, we've heard a lot about critical race theory um, in the media of late, coming from the United States and so on. Of course, this is a theoretical perspective that started uh, in the United States in the 1980s, started by African-American and other racialized uh, people of color from that, uh, from that uh, country. So critical race theory for me is a theoretical approach um, that centralized race and racism in analyzing laws, policies, and standard operating procedures of various societal institutions. Uh, these institutions can include the legal system itself. In India, we can look at the police, uh, the court system, and uh, the correctional system. So from that, from the legal system to the child welfare system that we have in our country today, we can examine those policies and see the intercession of race and uh, how, those, how race informs some of those policies that uh, we have in these uh, institutions especially when we explore them from the experiences of uh, uh, people of color and other marginalized individuals within our society. So this point to something that is important, that is a very important uh, aspect uh, from a critical race theory perspective, that when we talk about racism and the experience of racism, racism is not, from a, from a, a critical race perspective, it's not something that is just based on individual and individual bias or an individual prejudice against somebody, but rather it is seen as, as a practice that is embedded within the policies of the, those institutions that we, we, we are uh, seeing there. So when we look at uh, policies within the child welfare system, um, you may see that perhaps we have um, uh, um, uh, a practice of a best way of parenting that is informed by a Western view of what it means to be to be a parent. We can, when we explore um, racism and racial experience within the school system, we can see how students of color experience their, you know, their experience within the school. The school system happens on a day by day basis. We can also see the experiences of black people within, and from their interactions with police. We can also see the outcomes of uh, of the court system. Um, from people of color and other marginalized society in their interactions with the court system and corrections as well. So we, sometimes we just have to see the numbers of who is overly represented uh, in our court system, who is overly represented in our prison and so on. The who is overly represented in terms of the kids that we have on care and, and, and all those practices. And so for critical race theorists, um, so if we take that definition of critical race theory, that a theory or a theoretical approach that centralizes experiences of racism and racial, racial discrimination within those, those agencies, we can see some of the claims that critical race theories are making. The first one from uh, the work of uh, 
Dequire Gumby, uh, Chapman and Schultz in their work on the studying critical race theory, critical race research methodologies, method and methodologies, lessons from the field. There are a number of uh, um, uh, claims that were identified there that related to critical race theory. First, race and racism continue to influence laws, policies, relationships, and practices within society. Uh, we also know race and racism intersect with other forms of subordination to determine the life outcomes of others within our society. Uh, we can see critical race theory challenges a society's perceived colorblindness, objectivity, meritocracy, and Mediterranean perspective in general. We can also see critical race theories challenge and, and, and propose that uh, racism is a daily experience of people of color within our society. And so the voices of those that are marginalized, especially of black people, so critical race theory is important. We need to hear from, from people with lived experience to talk about their experiences. And so their stories are considered as data, not just anecdotes. And so the person that tells a story from a critical race theory, um, uh, that person is important uh, from a critical race theory perspective. We can also see critical race theories uh, promoting um, an intersection, interdisciplinary, intersectional approach for us to understand uh, racism and how to address racism within society. And that when we look at the experiences of racism from a, a historical perspective, we, that may not give us a full, a full picture without including economic experiences, without including even science, where science has been used in the past to justify why we should see a black person and a white person to be, to be, to be different um, in that. So and a, a critical claim too for precarious theory is that um, race is, is, it's not scientific. It is not scientific, it is not biological, it is, it is a, a social construct. But it, uh, nonetheless, it does have a real impact on those individuals that we identify as black or otherwise within our own society. And so critical race theorists are committed um, to social justice as a form of a, a liberatory approach, transformative and emancipatory theory, uh, with the primary objective to end racial and other forms of oppression through systemic changes. So we have to examine the policies that we have. We have to examine the policies that we have within our own institutions and centers because racism, it's not an individual practice, but one that is embedded within the policies of the criminal justice system and other institutions within our own society. Next slide, please. So um, one of the founders of, uh, of Craig Harris, Jerry Kimberly Cranshaw, whom um, I've uh, been had the opportunity to be on one of uh, her um, programs and talks that she moderated. Um, and so for her, she talks about this, she brought in this idea of intersectionality for us to be able to actually understand, to see um, how oppression often happened. That is not, if we pay attention to only um, the experiences of uh, individual within society from a perspective of race, we're more likely gonna miss the experiences of, uh, of others, even though they identify as, say, black women, for instance, that gender plays a part within within their own oppressions and so on. So uh, uh, Crenshaw pro uh, proposes this idea in the 1980s um, and in the early 90s of uh, taking an intersectional approach for us to understand. So she also realized that although we we can say critical race theory is one that is attractive to people of color, including black people. But she also understands that uh, um, critical race theorists themselves are not are not united because 
they all explore different areas of subordination within society, being patriarchy, uh, heteronormative approach to society, and so on, racial racial issues, and, and so, so they explore the areas of subordination from a different perspective. But she believes that the, the, the principle, the fundamental themes that, that bind all Krikari's theories uh, falls around of the challenge to objectivity that we often have that uh, you can only be objective if a white person say for instance in a court system uh, a white a black judge is dealing with um, uh, an issue or case that is involved uh, a black accused that judge or lawyer perhaps will be seen not to be objective because they are black and they're dealing with a case that involves uh, a black suspect or black accused person but if you're white you see you're going to be seen as being objective and uh, and um um, the work of Derek Bell also points to that, to that idea on racial standing. Where do people stand from a racial standing perspective? That if you're black, you're more likely to be seen as not being objective when you're dealing with issues challenging black, um, suppression of black, or anything that's going to be doing with a black person. But if you're white, you're going to be seen objective to be able to handle cases both from a white perspective, a white person suspect and a black, a black suspect as well. Um, and another theme, the fundamental theme that, that bind critical race theories together is this idea of challenge to meritocracy. The idea that when we work hard in society, we are more likely to succeed. What we know that uh, sometimes it's not about the effort and hard work you put in terms of uh, the rewards that we get into society. Race always uh, sometimes play a part into the accesses that you have and things that you have access to within society. Um, another challenge, fundamental theme, is the challenge to formal equality. Now let's just change the laws. When we change the laws, we are going to be able to see treating everybody equal. But we all know that if you think about uh, the history of slavery, for instance, both in Canada and the United States, where we have uh, slavery being practiced here in Canada for more than 200 years. So from that 200-year period, well, black people were being suppressed, denied access to a number of opportunities, including owning businesses within our own society. Others were moving ahead. And so 200 years back, you start, that's when your, your progress started. So we can see if you're running a, a race of 100, 100 meter, and you have somebody had 50 meter ahead of you, how likely are you that you're gonna be able to catch on the top? So sometimes it's not just changing laws and treating people equally. We have to look at equitable approach to treating individuals within our society to, to, to level the playing, the playing field. Also challenge the idea of uh, color blindness and neutrality within our own society. Color blindness in the sense that I don't see color. Those are things that you generally tend to tend to hear. Of course, you don't see you don't see color when you're dealing with somebody that you know you'll be um, you have personal connection to and so on. But that's not what people are talking about when when we talk about not seeing color and so on. By seeing color, if you use color, you use the skin color of somebody. To, uh, to help you identify whether the person is a threat or not. If you attribute uh, criminality and uh, violence to somebody that looks like black and you telling me that you don't see color when you're responding to that, that is that is a challenge that Quakerist theories don't agree with us. You know, you see color, we want people to see color because if we do see color, we are gonna be able to challenge some of those uh, practices and policies, systemic practices that have uh, conti that continues to disadvantage people of color within our society, including black people. So next uh, next slide, please. 
So how do cancer story telling challenges the Mediterranean uh, uh, narrative that we have within society that uh, tells us others are inferior within society, um, that tells us that, um, you know, uh, the poverty that others experience in society is just because they don't want to work hard. It's because they're lazy and all those things. When we don't look at um, history, we tend to remember historical things that we see as less controversial, if you think about it, and so on. We remember that Canada, for instance, is founded on the principles of freedom and so on, but we don't know, we don't remember that as part of that freedom to claim that Canada is founded on the principles of freedom, that there are others' um, uh, right and right to ownership of this land, uh, that they were oppressed as part of that, that separation that others we use as laborers to produce what we have today as Canada. So we do remember those things, but we don't want to remember uh, the other aspects that we don't see as something that's gonna create a, a picture of not of what Canada isn't isn't about today. And so I'm gonna talk a little bit about it. So uh, counter storytelling allows for us to hear stories from the other perspective of those individuals whose stories have been have been oppressed and uh, and suppressed uh, for a very long time. So I wanted to point next slide please. <laughs> oh sorry. I wanted to point out um, maybe you are just to you are in the history of Africa with ex producers okay so I wanted to point to three uh, three about three examples of, uh, of programs that are currently uh, being aired uh, so BBC the first one is uh, an African history with the executive producer Zainab uh, Bahwadi that this program is sponsored by UNESCO that explore the history of Africa from the perspective of, of, of Africans that talks about the origin of Africans uh, from slavery, the experiences with slavery, resistance and liberation to the present. And so when you hear uh, a thing, somebody will say that, you know, um, we have the Europeans going British and, uh, and, and all the European come Belgium, uh, the Netherlands, going to, uh, to, to, Sierra, to Africa, for instance, Sierra Leone, for instance, to rescue the Africans from their barbaric practices and so on. We know that when you watch this program, it will tell you a different story that people fought for their liberation. People uh, uh, knew the land was, was theirs and fought for, for, for their freedoms and so on. And so we can see, so that, that is a different history that we, don't, we didn't know about before. Even Africans themselves are not aware of some of those histories because um, the history that we know about Africans today is quite different from, from the actual. So this program explores the history of uh, Africa from uh, African perspective today. So you may want to watch, uh, watch that. A second story that I wanted to talk about, this is a recent program that started airing as part of the Black History Month. Actually, this talk was supposed to be part of the Black History Month uh, talk, uh, the BLK. An original story by executive producer, sorry, <laughs> executive producer, uh, producers Jenny Holmes, Holmes and uh, Sutherland that uh, explore the history of, uh, of black peoples from within, uh, within Canada from the 1700s uh, to today uh, from Nova Scotia, uh, Quebec, British Columbia and Ontario. That's another show that presents, uh, provides us with a different uh, counter narrative of what black people that we are, black people have been in this country, um, uh, dating back to the to the 1700s in in, in in Canada, and we can see their experiences as well there. Next next slide, please. Okay. To bring it more more local to the province of Alberta, 
this is another uh, virtual exhibit of black presence in in, um, in the province in this province of Alberta and initiated by the Edmonton Heritage Council um, we and and still we we raise a black presence in Alberta from the 1800s to the uh, to, to the 1970s by dr. Jennifer Kelly uh, that's another exhibit that you can access online to see the history of, uh, of black people here to see that um, that um, uh, discrimination and separation, uh, uh, segregation, those are all practices. They were very alive practices within the province of Alberta as well. Uh, next slide, please. When we look at, and, and that, so those, those are some, uh, another, another, another story that traces the work of uh, Cheryl Fargo, traces the, the a less known history or distorted history of a black cowboy who settled in Alberta in the 1900s, and that is specific within the southern, uh, southern province. And so, so if I was told that hey, a black person had lived in, in Brooks, for instance, in the 1700s, I would say no. Um, actually, John Ware was, was mentioned to me by one of my colleagues at the college um, when I started back there in 2015. So have you heard about this cowboy? Even the name of cowboy itself, that is not associated today with blackness. When you think about black people in the past, used to be considered as boys, no matter how old they were. And so they are the ones that tend to those animals. They are the ones. So now, but today, when you hear the word cowboy, it's not one that is shared with a black person. It, it's uh, not ranching. is not something that you are shared with a black person today. But history tells us that uh, they, they are foundational to, to the to, to the word itself, black uh, black cowboy or cowboy cowboy, for instance. In that, that is, um, they are shared to black people tending to, to to cows and some of those animals uh, in the ranches. Next slide, please. And so, when we look at all those series, you know, from a from a, an international perspective, worldwide perspective, of the experiences of um, uh, the history of Africa, exploring the different continents of Africa, uh, we look at the ex experiences of kind of uh, uh, black people within a Canadian context, and so on. We we can see the experience of black people from an Alberta perspective, and we can also see the experience of blackness, what it means to be black, a black person in, uh, within Alberta in the southern part of, uh, of, uh, of, this, um, of this country. And so we can see the importance of, uh, of stories, of counter-narrative, that when, when well, before then you will see uh, the history of, uh, of black people in Canada, it's recent. They are all immigrants from warring countries, seeking a fortune in, in this province. Their contribution towards the development of Canada and the province of Alberta and southern, southern Alberta specifically is not known. It's not one that you will learn from the history books, uh, either in, from high schools to, to, to uh, post-secondary schools prior to some of these stories coming up today. And so uh, Bell, um, talks, he's considered the father of critical race theory because he's one of the uh, initial persons that started challenging um, the, the influence of race, the intercession of race and uh, within the laws and society. So for him, the stories provide an insight into the lived experience of marginalized people within society. Uh, when you watch those shows, it will give you an idea what it means to be a black person in the 1700s. It will give you an idea uh, from us. I am from uh, Sierra Leone. I knew about um, uh, the first set, we refer to them, the first settlers, the uh, loyalists that fought alongside the British uh, army back in, in the, during the 1700s. They were shipped from Nova Scotia to Sierra Leone. So I always question if Canada was welcoming to black people why would those settlers decided uh, wanted to be shipped to africa to be shipped to a place where they don't know most of them were born in the states i would say 
Um, and so we have a group of second settlers, we call them in Sierra Leone, the Maroons today. Those are a group of individuals that identified themselves as the Creoles within, within Sierra Leone. But the Maroons were shipped from Jamaica, shipped to Nova Scotia as a form of punishment, and then later on shipped to Sierra Leone. And so you ask the question, why were they, do they wanted to be shipped there if Canada was welcoming to, to black people and so on? So, but we know now from, from the series BLK, the original story, that Canada wasn't welcome uh, to those individuals that look black, that, that, that we could identify today as, as black people. And so through my stories, through those counter stories that we are gonna be able to see to understand that Canada is not as welcome as we thought. Next slide, please. Another precarious theorist that, um, you know, Delgado, Richard Delgado, he uh, also talks about the importance of a story, that story brings people um, with shared experiences together. Because when we, when people talk about their experiences, whether with racism or racial discrimination and so on, uh, which it tend to be seen as isolated, or it's just that one incident, or it's just this area. But when people start sharing stories and people start hearing different stories of experiences similar to what they've experienced from different areas, people can make those connections. And then we can see those stories as being that are not just anecdotes as, as we often perceive within society. So counter-narrative are effective uh, from Delcaro's perspective to destroy those taken for granted narrative of others and within society today. That when we hear some of those stories, we can know that the color of your skin determines which area of the city you're gonna live. The color of your skin determines what type of access you're gonna be living. The color of your skin determines if you are gonna be living on a reserve, uh, as we know the history of Canada and so on. And we, we tend to see uh, Canada, to accept that Canada is one, um, racism is a practice within Canada, or the province of Alberta in general. Well, we, that would destroy the moral high standing of, uh, of Canada compared to the United States. Slavery only happened in the United States, not Canada. We, we know now that slavery happened here for more than 200 years in Canada. So it's not, of course it's gonna be different because, you know, so we shouldn't be seeing it from a comparative perspective as the work of David Goldberg uh, tells us, that we should be looking at it from a, a, a relative relativity perspective. We have South Africans sending somebody before the apartheid system, sent officials here in Canada to see how Canada is dealing with indigenous people and went back to South Africa and implemented apartheid system. Of course, we know the treatment of indigenous people here was also influenced by what was going on, reformatory practices within the United States, and those ones practices were implemented. So whatever thing we do, it's gonna be the Canadian style, not the US style. So it's a relative, we should be saying things from a relative perspective and not from a comparative perspective. Uh, last slide, please. I think um, that, uh, um, so when we, when you think about all these uh, stories and so on, so the stories that we tell ourselves, if we see Canada as a benevolent country, um, we see ourselves as, you know, um, uh, if you identify as a white person, your, uh, uh, your ancestors came to this land and saved the indigenous peoples and so on. Open the country today to black peoples coming from different warring countries as a way of settling to give them a better life and so on. So of course, you're heroes. And you can see, and most of the time, those heroes, the founders of this land tend to be primarily men women tend to disappear. So critical is theory from an inter intersectional perspective asks us to question um, uh, those patriarchy, uh, patriarchy within, within our society when we talk about the founders and so on that each and every person's story matters in, in this concept. 
that black people also play a part towards if we say founding. Of course, we know this land belongs to indigenous peoples. And when you see the, the UNESCO program on the history of Africa, you watch those about 15 episodes of them, you can see the similarities to what indigenous peoples experience here to those of other Africans in a relative, a relative different way. But that's another conversation for, for something for some, for some, some, something else. Next slide, please. Um, thank you. Thanks for this opportunity. And uh, I'll open the floor now for questions, I believe. Well, thank you very much for your talk. Um, very informative. Um, I would like to ask the first question, the moderator's, you know, prerogative. Sure. Um, mm. You talked a little bit about intersectionality. Um, how about also intersectionality within race? So being a woman or a black woman or a black lesbian woman, how does that then impact even further your experiences and how do those experiences intersect with each other? Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, definitely intersectional and th th it's, that's the most important thing because when you when we think about um, the civil rights, civil rights movements for instance, civil rights movements focus on uh, equal access to those institutions, education, laws and some of those uh, areas. And so the reason why, one of the reasons um, why um, uh, Cranshaw proposes this idea of intersection intersectionality um, was that to draw our attention so that although race play a factor in, in the experiences of, uh, of, uh, of black people in the United States, but by focusing only on those experiences that are informed by the skin color, which black blackness as a race, we are gonna ignore, and that will allow us to ignore the experiences of black women uh, of violence within the committed black communities as well. So taking an intersectional approach will tell us that when we look at uh, the experiences of subordination and oppression within society, uh, we can see race. We can also see how gender being in a, a patriarch society, where being a man gives you opportunity, gives you access to certain things, so on. So for black male would have access, we're gonna experience oppression from a racial perspective. But in terms of uh, gender, because we are in a patriarch society, Gender gives them opportunity that black women don't ex don't um, experience. Class also play a part. Immigration status also plays a part here. That if you're poor black and a woman, your experience is gonna be different from a poor black male, and so on. If you are somebody that has uh, an immigra uh, uh, immigration status, where a permanent resident, for instance, and somebody that is not a permanent resident, we can also see that your experience being uh, having status in Canada gonna give you that, even though you are you are a female and so on. So, uh, intersectionality allow us to see to see our position for us to recognize our positions, the privilege that we experience based on where we find ourselves, either from a gender perspective or class or um, that is not just related to race or sexual orientation and so on. So if you are somebody um, that is a black person, black woman, identified um, um, and, uh, in, in, a, uh, in a, a same-sex relationship, that too gonna impact um, your status within that group. And so when we look at it from an intersectional perspective, we can see that oppression, uh, people experience oppression from a different angle based on their sexual orientation, based on their gender, based on their class, 
and uh, and so on and some based on their ability if they're physically limited and so on all those things play a part and so uh, uh when we look at it from an intersectional intersectional perspective it helps us to locate the how people experience oppression in a different 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 ways based on those um, um, um attributes thank you our next question comes from knut peterson many thanks for your talk ibrahim obviously stories told by lived experience are most powerful. What are your thoughts on white people telling teaching black history? Um, you know, we can take it. Um, <laughs> I, for me, for me, I see that if you can teach, if, if you're white, you can teach about, 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 about black people's experiences. Um, how do I do that? Hey, I can bring in. So if if I'm a if I'm a white person, if I can if I'm a white person, that's a good a good thing to open. So here, when I go to Sierra Leone, I'm gonna be a white person. So whiteness, when we use whiteness, it's sometimes it's not about just the color. It is a way of being. You can be seen. I will be seen as a black a white person when I go to Sierra Leone because of a way of being, not the skin, the skin color. Um, but if I'm in Canada. Um, identify as a, <laughs> a white person teaching something about black black people. Of course, the best practice to do is inviting somebody from a black community with lived experience, perhaps to talk about. Um, you can talk about theory, part of what that experience is. You can talk about history, but here is somebody from the community that had lived experiences on those things can talk about them. You can, so the same goes to all everything else, any topic that you're talking about relation in relation to marginalization within society and so on, that we do have access to people today who are willing to share their own experiences that you can bring in as as lived experience expert to talk about their experiences within, within the, the classroom. It's better than not teaching or talking about it at all. Right, it's better than not teaching and talking about it at all, and you're not claiming to be, to know, to have knowledge on those things. I would, I would stand here and say I don't claim to know. Uh, I'm not speaking about black people, but doing so as well, it's, it's, <laughs> you, you know, it's not, it's not right. It's not going to be something that is that is uh, completely, completely accurate. And so, because, um, you know, when what I say and what I do do impact black people, that is not just limited. The impact is not just limited to me, but all of this. So it's better than not teaching anything. You can teach it and invite others with lived experience to talk about those things that you are talking about in your classrooms. Our next question comes from Terry Shillington. What is one or two significant changes that we could make first of all that would help towards better racial tolerance, acceptance, and opportunity? I, I think fear tends to come from non-knowing people, right? We, um, it's, it's interesting to see how our folks that are back home, that when you bring your old age relative here to visit you would stay in this want to stay in this country for a month or two and started saying i want to go back you know uh, because we tend to be isolated we tend to leave uh, you don't know your next door neighbor or you see them and just say hi if at all you're saying hi to each other so i think the first step is uh trying to know people trying to know who those people are um, if you're scared of somebody, maybe it's because we've attached a number of different things on the skin color, on the physical structure, on people, and so on. 
And so your reaction to being to, to fearing them may not be something that you consciously know about, but it's something that you've been uh, exposed to within society and so on. So the first thing is to be um, open to know people, trying to know um, what are the values of people and, and those things that are the ones that you don't you don't feel comfortable with. Ask yourself why you're not comfortable with them and so on, and try to see if you can establish uh, knowledge of who those people are and um, start from there. Um, we need to talk about race. We need to acknowledge the uh, the histories of people, how our history, is, we experience history from a different perspective and so on. That we need to acknowledge your stories and we need to take a look at our, you know, uh, institutions and see who are overrepresented within those institutions and ask the questions, why? Is it just laziness? Is it just criminality? Is it sort of something? And so, so those are some of the things that we have to look around ourselves, um, you know, to see, encourage those different perspectives, bringing people from different perspectives to be in our own places. Um, when we say being in the table, you know, be just as a token, but actually when you have people of a diverse background, whether racial background, gender, or sexuality, or anything that you not just have them there as part of to feel a quota or something, but actually listening and paying attention to what a unique intuition that they, they also bring into that to that forum and discussion. And use it part of to inform part of your decision making process. We have to make conscious decision to actually include others. And sometimes a part of that inclusion means that others are, should be willing to give up those positions that they are in. Because that's how we can we can have we can have that. So until until we are willing to give up even our own position so that we can include others, um, I think we're not gonna we're not gonna be able to get there. But we have to have that willingness to give up the privileges that we enjoy within society that we may not even be aware of to include others within our own uh, mix. Um, our some of our larger institutions and smaller institutions, I'm thinking of maybe police or government or um, that, that, that exhibit systematic racism in the way that they deal with the public. And when they get challenged on that, it's often, oh yeah, we just need to do more training. How do you feel about that? Like given that, you know, there's been training galore and the issues never seem to be a, a, seem to you know change at all so how do you yeah. feel about this whole notion of or this answer of oh we just need to provide more training uh, training is one where training is important but uh, for me it's the attitude right and so we live in a, an attitude it's something that hides behind waiting for that perfect opportunity to, to show it when, if you think about it, if you look at, let's say, if we look at the experience of black people in the United States prior to the Obama uh, presidency, and when you pay attention closely to the number of black people that were killed in the United States before and during Obama's presidency, you can see how a message was being sent to, to Obama that even though you are a president, that doesn't mean that, you know, black people are within the same square root and so on in, 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 this, in this, their own experience. So that is because attitude was coming out. So it's not about the training. We can do training. We can do all those things. But if the attitude that this person, this person is inferior to you, to the work that you do, and so we're not in the same class, if you have the attitude as part of that attitude that we've seen the uh, um, 
from slavery was justified by black people being barbaric, being savage and so on, for them to be enslaved, they violent and so on. So all the experiences that we are doing them good in providing food for them, even though we, we're getting them to work in plantation endlessly and so on. So those attitudes are still there. So until we are willing to change those attitudes, walk on those attitudes, consciously walk on those attitudes, that when you see a black person, you perceive them to be at your action, how you react to them because of that, that attitude of them being violent and so on, uh, or being inferior, it's not going to change, right? So we, we can do training, but I think we need to do more in terms of talking about this, um, having a forum like this to talk about some of these issues, inviting people from, from the community to talk about their own experiences and actually use those experiences not, not as a way of people trying to get a free pass, but really to improve the practices that we have, we have, we have within our own communities and so on. Bring in people from, from the community who may look like the people that they're going to be interacting with and so on. And so it's important that, um, you know, um, when you see, if I am a black person dealing with, when I see a black person, it's threat is not the first thing that comes to mind to me. Threat is not the first thing that, that comes to mind as you are threat. It's not, it's not the first thing that comes to mind because it's not something that I shared with the skin color being a threat, skin color being a criminal and so on. So we can do training, but I think we need to work on the attitude. And that, that is not just what we say in the public. It is something that we can work on, even things that we say in our houses. Um, you know, having kids, raising kids, and seeing how kids interact within, within schools today. Um, for me, I think as parents, we can learn from our kids. Those that are the ones that we haven't contaminated yet in providing, talking about those negative attitudes around them. But we can see how kids interact. So when a kid tells me they don't see race, I can, I can really believe that, yeah, they don't see race. Or if they do see those differences based on the skin color, kids would ask. They will ask questions. They're going to touch the skin to see if, if the color would, would, would turn their fingers and so on. So, so those are some of the things we need to work on, work on the attitude to change those attitudes. And then we can see those training that when we're saying it's in the public, it's not just saying it's in the public. We actually meant to change the culture of our organizations, how we train people, the language that we use as part of that, that training and so on. So part of my research, you know, looking at um, the cases on racial profiling, for instance, and where people that experience from marginalized black people are saying racial profiling, uh, police perhaps may see it as criminal profiling, but the ones that we identify as criminal tend to be associated with a skin color, with something. And so, so is this different semantic? One is saying racial profiling, another person is saying criminal profiling, and so on. So we don't, we don't get that, right? And if we look at the idea of you know, if it looks like and perception is important, perception is important for us to pay attention to those, that it's not what you think you're doing, it's how people perceive and how people interpret it uh, should also matter in, in this conversation. So we can train, but I think we need to work on the attitudes as well. Thank you. Um, our next question comes from Beth Mundell-Etherstone. Thanks so much. Are you aware of any research on living libraries? where people tell their stories to youth and that impact on changing stereotypes of color, gender, and age? 
Um, there is a normal, well, the, um, I think uh, one thing that comes to mind, um, Northwest College, I think they call it living, uh, live, living library also, where you have people um, share their stories. In Leftbridge College, we've been doing this um, uh, part of our, our Black History Month celebration. We call it a human library. Uh, I'm one of those participants that usually participate in that. And this year, we uh, had two other students um, who are presently the, the president elect of the Leftbridge College Student Association as well, and the VP on there. So, for people to share their own experiences, my research uh, is focused on the interactions of Black youth and um, and, and police within within Southern Southern Alberta and so on. Those are all attempts for me making those attempts to collect stories from from Black youth. To talk about their experiences, and they don't don't experience don't really necessarily need to be negative experiences. It can very well be positive experiences, and so for for those uh, youth, for them to have the opportunity to identify those things that they can share as something interactions or experiences that are positive, for others to see, these are some of the experiences that youth are identifying as positive interactions. These are what experiences that they are identifying as experiences that are negative experiences and so that's 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 where my, my research focus um uh try my i'm trying to research on those areas to get those stories and perhaps uh, those stories can help help our organizations and not just not just law enforcement organization but even schools right even schools are schools to, to have those experiences and have that reflect the um, uh, that reflect the disidentities of, uh, of, of of the students that we have. Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. Uh, sorry, Laurie, we're just uh, slowly going through the queue here. Does the Alberta school curriculum in K to grade twelve cover racism and related issue issues? Well. Yeah, I'm not sure how the school curriculum is, but I know my uh, I have a, a great a son in grade ten and grade eight. I know teachers are making effort. Teachers are including uh, materials that um, that allow kids to talk about. For my kids, come home and talk about the things that they're talking about in school and so on. So, uh, from that end you know um, they are engaging teachers here in Lethbridge are engaging in some of those conversations some of some of them this this talking about these things are new to them because you know they they those are not things that they've learned from their uh, days when they were when they were in the same same uh, same school or they were using some material that presents uh, a different narrative from what we know today about those histories so i'm not i'm not fully familiar about with uh, the curriculum um per se of the province as a whole but i know individual teachers and the more black teachers and teachers of color that we have in our schools the better too because those people will bring in different perspective on the on the on the material that it presents um in their schools and so on just as myself being an instructor how i do present material generally needed but then i bring in a different perspective experiences that i the examples that i use are informed from my own uh, experience as being a black a black male in uh, in this province, and so yeah, teachers are making effort. Teachers are making effort to introduce different perspectives and having those conversations in their school, at least from what I've seen from my own from my own kids. Beth Mundell Atherstone has a follow up question to Laurie's question: Does the UCP proposed curriculum proposed curriculum include issues of racism? 
I'm not sure if you know that. Yeah, no, I don't. Uh, I'm not aware of, of, of that of that so far. Okay. Our next question, again from Beth Mundell Etherstone. Local groups like the Southern Alberta Ethnic Association showcase various national cultures, foods, dances, etc. What wider role could they play in countering racism? It does. It does play a role. It does play a role. It introduces people to something different, that's something they may not be uh, aware of. It shows the value of, of people, um, the values that people have coming from different places. It also shows the similarities that people have and the connections that could be made as a result of uh, the dance, the food, and so on. So, for instance, we did actually this exercise on preparing jollof rice as part of the, the Black History Month. And you can see the variety of, of that dish, you know, within the West African context. And uh, so you, we have also countries from East Africa, Kenya, that also prepare similar food, but call it in a different, a different way. So I think it's not just important for uh, people, non-people of color, but also it's important for people of color themselves, for, us, for them to be able to see um, the connections that uh, prior to the uh, the the, um, the scramble and partition of Africa, that it, countries that we we see in today as different countries, more than fifty countries in today, used to be from they used to form in they are used to be in formation of kingdoms, you know, formation of kingdom and people travel from kingdom to another. So we have all these interactions where we've been able to share similar cultures and practices and so on. Of course, they're not going to be the same. They are going to be different, but it shows the connection that people have that we're not as much as different as we often we often thought about and so on. Even if our skin color not the same, <laughs> when we talk, we can see similarities on practices. And so on. so food, food, food. Um, it's it's a good practice. A good practice to bring food. Um, have people share food. Have people share their cultural practices, and it helps people of color to to see the connections and not to see themselves as completely different from uh, from others. Our next question comes from Laura Schultz. It has been reported that the exodus of people out of Ukraine are treated differently for people of color. Can you comment on that, please? You know, um, it's it's from my from the work that I've my, from my work, um, we can see the experience of black people. Usually, people will say, "Oh, it's just the U.S. experience," you know. But when you think about the experience of black people, the U.S. is foundational because um, the slave the history of slavery. But we also can see that if it's not race, what else? When and so it doesn't matter where you find yourself, you know, as a black person, because you can easily be identified by that skin color, right? So the experiences are not definitely gonna be the same. And so when people are talking about um, racial discrimination, especially for black people being treated differently because of the color of their skin, people will say, oh, it's just an excuse. Racism doesn't exist today. And something like this happened. Why are they being blocked? why are black people not allowed to to seek safety as anybody else um the only difference that we can see is so right now people are living uh walking getting to those borders you know it's hard to see the class it's hard to see the class all you can see is that skin color different that, that you have you can have access to safety and your skin color may determine and so when we look at immigration status too in there 
that if the perception was that, oh, these people enter here illegally, they're not even legal to be here in the first place, we will allow them to cross that. So it's, it's race is that single thing that signifies the skin color that follows these people wherever you find yourself in the world. And this is, this is a perfect example of it. We've seen it in the United States when Black Lives Matter protests were protesting the death of black people there. And we saw what happened in January 6th when, when the, the White House was stormed by people that are not, not identified as black. We saw the response. Even Joe Biden, when the then president-elect acknowledges that, that the way how law enforcement responds to, to dealing with rioters that are non-black, it's different from what that response would be if it is about black person. So it's really hard to miss to see that skin color as something that determines the access of, of people that we identify as black people today uh, in this in this um, in, in uh, countries outside of, uh, of Africa. If I go to Sierra Leone, of course, um, if I experience any form of oppression and so on, it's not going to be because of my skin color. Because when I turn around, everybody around me <laughs> looks the same as me in terms of skin color. Uh, only when I speak and the part of region, the country that I'm from, that if I speak Timne, which is my own ethnic group, my language, so ethnicities are treated to language. When I speak, when I speak Timne, if it's not a Timne region, then that perhaps maybe ethnicity will play a part in my uh, marginalization or oppression, but not the skin color. But for black people here, we've seen in Ukraine. The only thing we can see as a as a, a common identifier there um, to people here and the United States and most of most of part of the world wherever Black people find themselves today is that skin color. Mm. So how can we deny that? How mm. can we deny that? Mm. Our next question comes from Clint Peterson. What are your thoughts on taking down statues and renaming of institutions of known racists? I, it's, it's, it goes back to um, that narrative that, that we talked about, the narrative that we create of the founders and all those things. So some people, uh, you may see those statues as, you know, it shows the heroes that play a part towards the finding, the finding of these institutions and so on. Um, to others, it may be seen as uh, statues of oppression um, from the past perspective that, that every day that I see those things are a constant reminder um, uh, to remind me of my inferior status and so on. From somebody that is an educator, as I see myself as an educator, uh, in the sense, if we build a narrative on those, if you're going to put a statue, put the correct role that that person plays in society, that if that person was a slave owner, Put it that this person was a slave owner and these are the practices that we don't want to see repeat again and so on. But I think Germany, the practice in Germany sets a, a, a good examples for us to see here. That, uh, you know, um, in Germany, Brian Stevenson, actually a US leading scholar talked about this and his interest working with um, young people of our representation in the United States and in US prisons and so on. Talks about how the absence of those statues, people that are, are linked to Nazi Germany, that you don't see the statues around around Germany and so on. So and, and that to acknowledge the history. So I don't for me, for me personally, um, keep those things up. Put the other role of that person, what they've done in society, as a reminder that we don't want to repeat the same thing again, but not as a glory to to celebrate those those people. 
that should not be the focus of those uh, statues. But that the, the focus earlier on was to celebrate, and I think that's wrong, mm -hmm. right? And so if the, the focus was as a form of a celebration as heroes, it's wrong. But if it is a part of having them up there as a way less land uh, from it, and not to repeat, maybe we need to rewrite the, 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 uh, the, the things, the information that we have on them, and not as just a hero, but identify them for what things they've done within history. And so we don't repeat it again. Yeah. Okay, we've got four more questions. So maybe we can spend a minute or so on each. Um, Terry Shillington, as a grandparent of a 12-year-old, it seems to me many of our, our young are in brackets and um, capital letters colorblind. They are discouraged from any race comments in the classroom. What are your comments? I think we should have allow kids to have because kids, we, we if we look at from a social learning perspective and so on, um, kids can imitate the type of things that we do, the practice that we have in our homes, and the type, the way how we talk, and, and all those things. Um, I think we have we have an opportunity to allow kids to talk about, to allow kids to be open, and uh, to do our role as educators to explain to correct the history of things that we didn't know about before. Mm -hmm. So I think we should be having those discussions and allow kids to ask those questions. They can change society to the way that we want it, where we don't see color, but we're not there yet. Mm -hmm. um, Laurie Schultz, extremist groups associated with white supremacy ideology were identified in the recent blockades. How does a country slash community approach this? What are your thoughts? Well, I remember what I mentioned is that the idea of ideology, we remember, you know, and that tells, it, their action shows why we should be talking about these things, that people, are, we're talking about those and talking about, we saw the money, how much money they raised, right? Where did they get that money from? And it tells you, so racism, it, it's actually important that uh, when we talk about racism or racial discrimination within a Canadian context, in the U.S. it's open, you know. You know that if you're a black person, you know how to carry yourself in certain areas. In Canada, it's very subtle that you don't see it. It's, it's, so that's, that, for me, that's the most dangerous one for me. I don't mind somebody having um, wearing a hat or identify themselves as white supremacist. When, when I see somebody identify him or herself as a white supremacist, I know not to get close to you not to be in a, in a dark place with you or <laughs> something like that. But here it, you, in the Canadian context, it's very subtle. You don't see it and so on. So it's it just solidified, just confirm what people have been talking about, the experiences of racial discrimination and mon many forms of discrimination. It's like, so the lesson we can learn from it is racism is real, right? Mm -hmm. Racism is real. And uh, the skin color that you identify determine what you can and cannot do. That is that is actually something that we need to pay attention. So that's what it confirms for me. For us to pay attention and acknowledge that, yeah, people have been saying this and we are seeing it right now. Yeah. Next question comes from Knut Peterson. Canada has a long history of racism towards many people of color. Are you aware of racism between people of color as well? Yeah, and so it's, uh, you can see, um, and of course others may link it to um, the idea of, if you put it in the colonial context where people are separated by 
races and say this ethnic group is better than others. We saw it from the Hutus and Tutsis in Rwanda uh, war there. And so because we have this tribe from a colonial perspective being say your tribe is better than this and so on. And some people have said, of course we have those differences. That's what I was, I mentioned earlier too, that um, my, if I experience discrimination and so on going, if I am in Sierra Leone today, it's not because of the skin color. It is because of, um, of uh, perhaps the language. The lighter your skin, the more access you have to opportunities, even within within the black community. So, so those are also it, so that Greek career story from an international, from an intersectional perspective, allow us to see the shades, how shades of color also impact the access that you get, even within your own society and so on. The language that you speak may also give you access to a number of privileges within a country where people look the same, right? So it allows, give us for us to be able to ask those questions. Of course, yeah, there are discriminations, forms of discrimination existing within communities of people that share the same color. Okay, and our last question of, of the day from Trevor Page. Do you believe that Canada's position on diversity is genuine or just lip service? <laughs> Honest answer is lip service. Um, say, for instance, we've been doing reconciliation, reading statements, and all those things. We have an opportunity here in Lethbridge. Okay, let's say we live in, in the, the biggest, close to the biggest reserve of, uh, within, within the Canadian context. If we truly mean to do reconciliation practices and so on, when, when somebody buys a land here to build a house, they pay money. Let's say we're going to take 2% of that land purchase for somebody to build a house, let's give it to the owner of this land as a start. Two percent, right? So that let's give every single land sale within this city, two percent of that money goes to the blood tribe because they are the owner of this of, of this uh, of this um, uh, land that we, we call we call it home today. That could be that could be a meaningful a start to a meaningful reconciliation. Right, mm -hmm. and uh, we can see the history when we look at. We, if you watch those uh, 15 episodes from Zainab Bahadi, you can see the practices, experience of Africans. You can see the connections, similarities to what Indigenous peoples are experiencing today. So that's why people are calling uh, Canada as a settler colonial colonial state. In in those African countries, the colonialists left, but they left the foundation that continue to enrich them today. Whereas in Canada. They didn't. They stayed, and we can still see those policies today within police, in law enforcement, child welfare system, and our school system today, where the histories of others are suppressed, the history of heroism of others are promoted within our school system, right? So we need to do more, more mm -hmm. actions, and less, much more, uh, uh, the lip service of, of it. Well, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for your time and for your very mm -hmm. valuable talk and information, Ibrahim. Um, before we end this session, do you have a take-home message for our viewers? Um, a take-home message um, for me is listening to people, value what they have to share uh, with you. Um, the experiences of people, people are not just making excuses. When you have, I myself can identify myself, I had a foundation before coming to Canada. But it's that foundation helped me to be where I am today. So although we can see that experiences that people have, 
people come to this country in the different different classes, different and so on. So the experience is going to be different. The access to resources is going to be different. We need to pay attention. We need to hear those people that are experiencing whatever they're experiencing. Take their own stories as valid data, not just anecdotal excuses. Not to do things, right? It is that we have to validate the experience of others and use those to actually inform the practices and policies that we have within our societies today. Thank you, and thank you everybody for um, tuning in. Um, there's quite a few thanks in the queue. Laurie Schultz, Ibrahim, thank you for your presentation today. Beth Mendel Etherson, mm -hmm. thanks Ibrahim. A most important issue in not only our society, but in the world. Um, and for folks watching us, uh, I hope you join us uh, next Thursday at the same time with Richard Phillips the Alberta Irrigation Modernization Program. So we look forward to seeing you then.